The best kind of parenting is the kind of parenting that has enough mistakes that kids get to learn that we bounce back from mistakes, we repair, and we move on. And I I don't mean to say that in a scary way so much as a way to motivate parents to be like a little bit messier. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kara Goodwin and welcome to the Parenting Translator newsletter and podcast. I am just beyond excited today because I have Dr. Aliza Pressman on the podcast today. And I feel like everybody listening probably already knows who you are because <laughs> you're one of the top parenting experts in the world. But just to give a tiny bit of background, um, you're a developmental psychologist who runs the Mount Sinai Parenting Center in New York. And you also host the incredibly popular parenting podcast, Raising Good Humans. Dr. Aliza, could you please introduce yourself and tell my audience a little bit about, um, if they don't already know, some of the work that you do um, for parents and why you do it? Sure. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I I am the co-founding director of the Mount Sinai Parenting Center, um, and that's work that I do that is nonprofit and more academic. And we focus on creating and teaching healthcare providers about child development and parenting and integrating it into the healthcare system. So that's a national program and it's really cool. But I I think it's a funny name for a center because it sounds like we directly work with parents and actually we're working with the people who most have access to parents. Um, and and then I teach residents and all that fun stuff in pediatrics. And then I work with parents in my private practice, mostly in mom groups. Um, and that's more community-oriented. Um, there are groups that have been going on, some of them for 15 years and some of them for one year. And, um, oh, my God, those sounds... <laughs> Yes, I should apologize in advance too. I have my three-month-old here with me, but I figured that this audience would be understanding. Yeah, um, so please forgive the occasional baby sounds. <laughs> I hope we get lots of them. And then I have a podcast called Raising Good Humans and now a book. And basically, they're all just different ways to reach families to try to make life a little bit easier using evidence, which I know is something that you're so vigilant about. And it's such a huge problem right now when there isn't the thoughtful use of science. So not just like misinformation, but I also think that it's a bummer that sometimes even science is used against us because it's like not remotely relevant to the context that, you know, an individual might be in, but now it feels like this really important thing. So I think translating science is something that we both feel pretty strongly about. And I think it helps hopefully give enough information that there's guidance, but not so much that there's rigidity and stress. Yes. Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I think about that all the time of how do we get the research out there, but also not make it feel like it's like a mandate on parents? Like yeah. you must do this. So I love how you are, you know, equally as into the research as I am, which is extremely into it. And um, 
I would love to hear, you know, from your perspective and your extensive reading of the research on child development, what are some ways that understanding the research can actually help make parenting a little bit easier? Because I think, you know, that's your goal and that's one of my goals. You know, how can we actually use all this, you know, pretty complicated information that's out there to make parenting easier and better? Well, I mean, I think that part of the reason why I wrote the five principles of parenting was to boil the science down to the five core principles and think about how can we take the science taken together? It's not like I invented any of this stuff. I I actually think like it's so funny when you hear people talking about revolutionizing parenting or, you know, new movements and everything, but really there's so much science that we can call on. So it's just a matter of translating it. And so I think it can make life easier for parents when you boil it down to the really important stuff that actually moves the needle that you have control over. So, so much of the science is interesting, but there's nothing you can do about it. So it feels like, do we really need to fixate on certain things that you're not going to be able to do anything about? Or can we make our lives easier by having the freedom to let go of a lot of things that are just never going to be in our control and have a small number of things that are in our control that are shown to make a difference in child outcomes and parent outcomes. So that's where I think the science can actually alleviate a lot of the stress. Like for me, the procedural stuff, when people talk about anything procedural related to attachment or something, I'm like, why? why are we burdening parents with nonsense like this? If it's helpful for you to feed in a particular way, or it's helpful for you to sleep in a particular way, Godspeed, but it's not going to be associated with different kinds of attachment. So why are we trying to take too much science and make it more important than it is? So I think that that's where I land is Take what's important that you actually can control and a little bit of what you can't just to give you a framework like temperament you can't control, but we should know about it because it can help us understand what's going on with our kids and ourselves. And then I think it's easier. Like to me, there's a freedom there to make choices about your parenting. Using the science to feel confident in those choices seems like a win. And then also looking at the science to see that the science backs up kind of a more often than not a good enough framework, not a perfect framework, to me is also very unburdening. Yes. I think that's so helpful for parents to know is like, there is no research studies showing that you have to do this perfect 100% of the time. You know, in fact, if anything, like there's research showing that you can make mistakes and like, this is so good for your kids. Right. I'm so curious, you know, as somebody who is as into the research as I am, as a parent yourself or with the families you've worked with, have you ever advised or gone against the research yourself? And why have you made that decision? I think I do it every day. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think that the research is, it's not, I mean, because we're not robots and because sometimes you have to use the research, I think, to feel confident in your own intuition. But in being attuned 
to what's going on, you may decide like, "Mm, there's something about this that doesn't feel good. So to me, it, I guess in a way it is still scientific. Like I'm not going against all the research, but the research is so contradictory. So you kind of have to choose what matters to you. And like, for example, when I see people saying that this is a really shallow example, but that using rewards for behavior doesn't work. I'm like, well, that's not actually true. It's just not going to work for if your values are not about compliance. It can totally work for compliance. So we have to decide like, okay, well, my jam is not having a super compliant kid, so I'm not going to do a ton of rewards. So in a way, like I might be then... I know there are times when I'm like, you know what? I'm going to use positive reinforcement. It's full-on behavior modification. I don't care. (laughs) I just need this to work in the short term. This is what I'm doing. And there are moments when I'm like, oh, that's not, you know, motivating intrinsically. That science is in contrast to what I'm doing. But this is what my need is right now. And so I go against some of the science sometimes to serve some of the other science maybe And then there are just days when I'm like, I don't care. This is what's happening. (laughs) And and I think the freedom that you get from knowing the the really important stuff that matters is that you can let go of rejecting some of the quote-unquote right ways of parenting that moment or that day because you know that on balance, you're totally good. Yes, I love that. You know, I think it's so important to like, think about, you know, what are my overarching values as a parent and also like, what are my needs in this moment? Right now, yeah. And it's okay to make changes based on like, this is real life. You know, I've got to for school in the next five minutes or (laughs) they're going to be late, you know, and it it may not look as beautiful as if you had two hours, you know? Totally. Um, That's such a good point. So I think it would help everybody to hear, you know, you have this book coming out in January that's called The Five Principles of Parenting, which is kind of like an overarching guide guide to parenting based on these five principles. Could you explain what these five principles are and why you think that they're learning about these five principles might be helpful to parents? Yes. And um, it's so fun to talk to you about it because I'm so curious what you think. But I I tried to boil down what we know about parenting research and child development into something that we could have in our arsenal that feels doable. And so if you kind of lean into these five core principles, relationship, reflection, regulation, rules, and repair, that you have your best shot at leaning on those whenever you need to make a decision And if you do, chances are you're doing great. You're doing well enough. And the rest of the, you know, I I tried to make the first half of the book the science of these five principles and how I got to them and then translate them into how that might impact your everyday decisions and challenges over, you know, from infancy through adolescence. But what, what I wanted everybody to feel like was there were five principles that were in their control and that if you can check in on those principles that you have kind of a North star for what is considered 
I, I hate this phrase, but best practices. And then it gives you kind of like check-ins. Okay. Did I connect? Relationship is, I just used ours because it's like easy to remember and because it's a pathway to resilience. <clears throat> but there are so many different ways to say relationship, connection, responsiveness, sensitivity of care, any anything that you hear out there in the zeitgeist of parenting is probably going into the bucket of relationship. And so that's the first and most important thing. And then reflection, you could also say mindfulness. You could also say presence. You could also say, you know, checking in with yourself, making sure you've kind of come to terms with your past so that you're not bringing it into your present and helping your kids learn about being reflective and taking that pause that's a sort of the space between reactivity and making an intentional decision that gives you the freedom for regulation, which is the third principle. And I, you know, self-regulation is obviously one of the key things that we need to have in life, but you can't have it completely down until you're fully developed because it's housed in your prefrontal cortex and that doesn't develop until we're in our, you know, 18 to late twenties, maybe even 30. I feel like it gets later and later every year. And so we have co-regulation where we help our young people and you're co-regulating right now with your baby. And so they borrow our nervous system and I just think that is the most beautiful thing in the world. And so it had to make it into the core principles because if you're in relationship and you're being reflective, you are available to regulate. And if your child isn't, you're available to be present and help them borrow some of your nervous system, which I do, you know, I think it can be less satisfying in the moment to moment, but incredibly satisfying over time. And then rules is just a R word for boundaries and limit setting. And we know that that's super important, but sometimes, especially right now in the culture of parenting, we lose in the service of sensitive caregiving and relationship. We forget about boundaries and limit setting. Um, and so I, I knew that that needed to be highlighted in these five principles because otherwise I could see a world where parents are really in the relationship and really attuned, but think that that means that if their child is in distress, they shouldn't hold their limits and have certain expectations and give them the safety of boundaries. And then repair because it's like at the heart of developmental science is the idea of rupture and repair is part of strengthening of relationships. And all that research started with mothers and babies. So it's kind of beautiful that you're living it right now. And that, you know, it happens a third of the time there's like the beautiful dance that you hear about. And the rest of the time it's rupture and repair. And it's that the repair isn't just a nice thing to have when things go south, but it's actually imperative for healthy development. So if you had the choice between a beautiful dance where you're not stepping on each other's toes and some missteps where you find out that you can get back to the music, you would choose the one with the missteps so you can get back to the music and do better and better and have confidence that you're able to bounce back than if there was never any problem to begin with. So I love repair. So anyway, those were the five core 
principles that are in our control as parents because we can't control our kids and are most highly linked with resilience and resilience of the parent too. And I also felt like it really captures the big science of child development. And again, none of it's mine. I framed it in this one particular way, but this is our field and it is really beautiful and robust and we don't know everything. There's a lot missing, but this was the stuff that feels like, okay, this is decades. (laughs) This is really relevant to across cultures and communities and, um, and it's actionable. So let me make it easier for people. And I did want this to be kind of an overarching book that, you could grab and you don't have to read it one time, but you know, depending on your child's age or what's going on, you might check in again and eventually have sort of a fluency in thinking about this and how it applies to each situation so that you don't need any of the support systems that we've all put into place, though it's great to have them. Yes, yes. I totally agree that, you know, these underlying principles are not, you know, it's not just one study that suggests repair is important. It's, you know, there's this consistent research that shows us, you know, these principles are so important for, you know, raising a happy, healthy child or raising good humans, as you would say on your (laughs) podcast. And, you know, speaking of that, you know, I think I love how you talk about, you know, this goal of raising good humans rather than, um, you know, I want to raise a really smart student who gets all A's or I want to raise an obedient kid who always listens to me. It's like, how do we actually raise like the next generation of good humans? Um, So can you tell us um, what, why you chose, you know, focusing on raising good humans, what that actually means and how does science inform that? How do we raise, you know, nice, generous people who are giving back to the world rather than taking from it? Well, it's interesting the way you just described a good human, because one of the things that I talk about in the book, and I really feel like I, I don't emphasize enough, but I should, is that each of us has our own definition of good human. And like clearly for you and for me too, it's very obvious. It's like a kind, empathetic, human who contributes to the world, has purpose, all that stuff. But for some people, it might be something completely different. And I think the key is the intention to name kind of what what you're setting out to do. And are you hoping to figure out like, what are my family values? What are my, what, what is my child like? What is their temperament? What gets them going? What gets me going? What do I, when, I feel like we all know what a good human is, but if you ask each individual, it's probably going to have like a slightly different definition. So I think that the science goes back to those five core principles, help you get there. And the rest is up to the temperament of the kid (laughs) and kind of how we move through the world. And I do think that there's room. There's room for so many different definitions of what a good human is, but we are better served and more likely to get there if we define it for ourselves. If we just take a moment and it can change and it can be dynamic and and all of those things, but it's really interesting to have kind of a sense of what does that mean to you? Because it just helps us 
figure out what really matters to us so that we can focus on that. And then we can put the other stuff to the side. And some people might say part of being a good human is being really well-educated. And so the straight A's aren't what matter, but education matters to me. And I'm going to put that in my mission my of raising a good human, but then be in, you know, be aware of it and make sure that you're explaining that to your child versus getting straight A's. Or maybe you're like, no, I, I mean straight A's because I think they'll have more of a chance at being contributors to the world if they go to this college and have this, you know, conscientiousness or whatever. So I think there are many ways to to define it, but knowing how you define it is super important. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah, thinking through, you know, consciously as a parent, like how, what is a good human? What is the end goal here? I know for myself and a lot of parents, like part of raising a good human is raising a resilient person, um, a resilient child, a resilient adult. And I think we all are thinking a lot about resilience right now. Like we live in this crazy, unpredictable world. How do we raise resilient kids? You know, I know you talk a lot about this and I've seen you talk about the research and, or heard you talk about the research on resilience from World War II, which I just think is fascinating. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that and why resilience matters and how we encourage it? Yeah. um, So resilience, I think, well, two things about resilience that I just think is incredible And part of that is when, you know, the first resilience researchers were looking at war-torn kids and how they turn out okay and which ones do and which ones don't. And the, you know, one feature that was, I think, really heartening is that having an adult caregiver who is sensitive and highly attuned and kind of those five R's actually can make it so that that level of toxic stress moves to tolerable stress. And tolerable stress means that your brain is not bathed in stress hormones chronically. So you get to come down from that stress response and learn and be open and have a chance, have a shot at living a thriving life despite adversity. Whereas toxic stress in the absence of it's stress in the absence of coming down from it, and it's stress in the absence of having a loving, supportive caregiver. So to me, that is so heartening because it's hopeful. Like, it's free. It's this baby, if people could see. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> She's that very distracting. She <laughs> delicious. Oh, my God. Um, so to me, it's really heartening that we have the capacity to move how our the brain architecture of our children responds and grows based on that capacity for attunement. And again, not all the time. And we're talking about a good enough. We're not talking about all the time heavily attuned. And we're also, we're talking about stress that's at a level that is chronic, meaning it's not a moment that you then come down from and move along. It's not because you had to give up a pacifier. It's not because you didn't get the blue cup and you wanted it so badly and you got a red cup. It's not because you had to finish the soccer game and lost. It's we're, it, it goes into like deep, deep kinds of chronic, terrible stressors that we can bounce back from in the presence of having that adult caregiver. And the other thing I think that's super important about resilience research is it's not a quality. You're not like, a person who is resilient. 
the idea that you would be resilient or not removes the major factors that are, I, I do go into this in the book, it's all Ann Mastin's research on resilience. And there's so many beautiful researchers that have looked at resilience and none of them say that you can be or not be resilient because there are factors that are not related to the individual. There is one part of it that is related to the individual. And there's one part of it that's related to the caregiver. And then there's a host of things that are related to socioeconomic status and political climate and poverty and racial inequity and, and, and. So since we can't do anything about those, I mean, you can, as a way of life, you know, be somebody who fights for justice and all of those things. But like day to day, we have control over our parenting and that those five core principles, I think we know are highly linked with resilience. And then there are skills that you can build in your kids that are highly linked with resilience. And so those also feel doable because they're, I think of games, gratitude, autonomy, motivation, empathy, and self-regulation. And so those are buildable skills. And when you combine that with your parenting, you have a kid who is way more likely to be resilient in the face of setbacks, trauma, adversity, and moments. And the only other thing I will say is we need stress to build resilience. So we, the positive stressors, the, the, those moments like not getting a part in a play or not getting the pacifier or whatever, those are positive stressors that are actually really important to build resilience. And you don't even need a nice parent to build resilience. (laughs) You just have to have those stressors and come back from them. So that's why I wouldn't want anybody to confuse like toxic stress and positive stress. We don't want a stress-free existence. That would be quite a pathway to not being resilient. Yes. Yes. So our goal as parents is not to remove stress from our kids' lives. Right. Um, I think that's such an important point because, you know, obviously none of us want to, who love our kids, like we don't want to see our kids stressed out, but, but it, you know, I think it's so important to remember that part of facing, you know, small amounts of stress with a loving caregiver, like you said, that's what builds resilience, you know, not removing all sources of stress from our kid's life before they even have the chance to encounter them. Um, So I recently read an article that you wrote that I loved that was called um, Perfect Parenting is the Enemy of Good Parenting. Can you talk (laughs) a little bit about that and explain why we want to normalize not being perfect parents? Yes. So what I really wanted to call it, because I put this chapter in my book, but I got, it got rejected. Um, Uh was I wanted to call it perfect parenting is the enemy of perfect parenting. But um, they, my, the publishers were like, that doesn't, that's not really going to resonate. But so I landed on perfect parenting is the enemy of good parenting because the idea that we could be perfect, first of all, is ridiculous. But second of all, the burden that it would place on our kids to imagine a world where they're supposed to be perfect because this perfect this person their hero their um you know their parent their primary caregiver is perfect 
or presents as perfect to them, then you grow up and who wants to be that grown up? That grown up is so insecure and feeling so less than because they were not able to be as amazing as their parent. And they, when they make mistakes, feel like what's wrong with me? That wasn't supposed to be in the cards. So I think that the best kind of parenting is the kind of parenting that has enough mistakes that kids get to learn that we bounce back from mistakes, we repair, and we move on. And so if you were perfect, which we couldn't be anyway, but if you were even aiming for perfect, you'd be actually, this is a dramatic word, which I'd like to think of a better one, but you kind of would be robbing your child of the deep, deep belief of their worthiness because how could they ever live up to you? Yeah. And I I don't mean to say that in a scary way so much as a way to motivate parents to be like a little bit messier. Yes. I think that's so important, you know, to remember that it's not only impossible to be perfect, but like even if we could be, that's not what's best for our kids. Speaking of not being perfect, you know, you talk a lot about how we as parents are kind of growing up with our kids. And, you know, I've definitely experienced that, (laughs) you know, I've on my fourth child right now. And I'm like, it's, it's still happening. You know, I'm real realizing things from my childhood that haven't been resolved. And I'm still learning things about myself and how to cope with my own emotions. And, um, and it's hard. So how do we handle kind of growing up ourselves and making mistakes while also trying to be an effective parent and juggling all the different demands we have in our lives? How do we hand, how do we manage all of this and stay sane? I mean, I don't have four kids. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm not, for the juggling part and the managing part, I'm hoping that the more kids you have, the more grace you give yourself. I guess my hope is that we treat ourselves because we're growing alongside our kids because we're born as parents when our kids are born. I'm hoping we give ourselves the grace that we give our kids as they're developing, which is to say, how would I respond when my child makes a mistake like this? Because they just learned how to do this. Well, I'm just learning how to respond to a very upset kid, or I'm just learning how to respond to my child's distress when their need wasn't met, or I'm just learning how to respond when I have three other kids and a job and a partner and the the milk just spoiled, like whatever it is. How could you possibly expect of yourself that you would know everything if you were a growing and developing person? So we think of adulthood as, you know, we're adults, we're here, but I I want us to think of our parenthood as growing truly alongside. So we're brand new parents when we have our first babies and you're a brand new parent of a fourth baby. So like, it's a different experience and it's certainly a different one than I have had. So it also means that I need to recognize that I have a different growth trajectory than you have and that my experience can't be what your experience is. So I can learn from you and I can hear you and try to understand you, but I can't tell you what your experience is. When we imagine that we're treating ourselves and using a voice with ourselves that we would use with a child, not in a patronizing way, but in that way of like, I want to, I'm here for you. And this was a mistake. And that's because you're new at this. That's a much softer voice than the voice mothers typically have in their head. 
Yes. I think that is so true. You know, I remind myself all the time, you know, because even though this is my fourth kid, I'm like, well, I've never had an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a baby before, yeah. you know? This is new. Every day is new. Every day is a new challenge. And um, I think that's so important to remember that we are all just kind of learning on the job. We're not, we haven't achieved some level where we're just, you know, the best parents we're going to be. We're all just kind of learning as we go. Um, So something else you talk about is there is no right way to parent. And I think that's so important because a lot of times when I'm on social media, you know, I see like, there's a certain script that you have to say in exactly this way, or if you don't say it in exactly this way, like you are harming your child. So how do you reassure parents who are seeing this information that, you know, there is only one right way to parent. And if you don't do it in exactly this way, you have irreparably harmed your child and it's, it's too late. You might as well give up. <laughs> I know it's actually such a, I'm sure we both have the same reactions because it's not, it does not map to the science. So it's even more frustrating because you're like, what is happening here? Yeah. <laughs> like as if those scripts even were, you know, a, a part of a randomly assigned study with parents using that script and this script. It's not, it's not even like we know what anybody's like, it's just, there's this idea and it's expressed as like, if you say this, you're going to have a kid who's codependent or you're going to have a kid with an anxiety disorder. You're going to have a kid who hates you or whatever. And it's like, first of all, it's a moment. Second of all, there is no right way. It goes back to there are a few core things that we kind of know are better than, you know, there is, there, there is a kind of better path, like a Goldilocks kind of parenting, but, but how that comes out and what you decide is important and what you decide to emphasize and how you express it, what kind of voice you have, what words you use is none of our business. (laughs) And I feel like, there are many beautiful things about social media. We're, we're both on social media. Like there are ways to get information out there, but it's not the whole story because it's, there's a limited time and it's more appealing when you say something extreme. It just is. People look at it more, people comment more, people have more opinions and then it gets more out there and then you grow your audience bigger. So there's an incentive to do things like that. There's an incentive to have a quick script that's under 30 seconds. And now you're going to make it so that your child never tantrums. Like yeah. <laughs> these are, these are ways to, to get interest, but it's super important to have some sense of your own belief that you have the right way, that there are going to be, there's certain voices that are helpful to you, turn them up and use them as needed and certain voices that make you feel less than, and you should turn those right off. Even if they're one of ours, I think we probably both would, I will speak for me only, but I would rather people shut me out than like early in my career, because I lived in New York city. I often bumped into clients and like a lot of times they would say things like, I'm so sorry. I know I shouldn't be I don't know, fill in the blank, like having my baby out at night with a pacifier in their mouth, walking around the restaurant or whatever it is. And I was like, 
If I'm making you feel that way because I gave you some ideas about how you might have an easier time with sleep, that's a, that's a me problem, not a you problem. Like I'm here to serve and like give guidance and support and sometimes just say like, by the way, that doesn't matter at all. It just might make your day easier. But if it's at all making you feel like I'm a crappy parent, I didn't use that script today. It's not the right, it's not the right way for you. It might be awesome for someone else. And I think social media kind of amplifies that. And we're always looking for like hacks, but there's no hack for being a person. Yeah. If only it were that easy. Yeah, that'd be so awesome. <laughs> yes. I yeah, I completely agree. You know, if if there is an account, even if it's mine, that's making you feel bad you know, unfollow, mute, whatever it yeah. is you have to do because, you know, we have to find the the sources of information that like resonate with us as a parent and make us feel more confident and make us feel better. Um, and it, you have to just be aware of how different sources of information are making you feel. You know, it's so funny because I had these clients who texted me. It's It was a couple and they texted me that they were having an argument because they wanted to one of their they had twins and one of their babies was 9 months old and was crying after they put her to bed and one of them really did not want the crying and was like I need to go in and the other one was like no we need her to sleep let's just give it 15 minutes and they were arguing and they decided to text me and they were like what's the right answer and I said to them, well, I it would be fake news if I gave you the right answer because one of you wants to go pick up the baby and one of you thinks it's okay. And do I think that your nine-month-old is going to be just fine if you don't go in? I certainly do, but I don't have to be there listening. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. that's, you know, that's not for me to say. And he said, one of the guys said, I want fake news. Like I want, cause I said it, it would be fake news if I just said exactly what to do right now. And he was like, can you just give me the fake news? Like step-by-step, step, how many minutes, what can we do? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, I will. If that will give you ease, I'll give you what I would do based on what I know. But I just want to strongly reiterate that that is my opinion and it may not work for you, but please don't think of it. And if it doesn't work for you or if it makes you feel like, you're tight in the chest or you're going to fight more, just ignore it. And they were like, we will, but it really feels better. It's a soothing bomb to hear your list, like to-do list. So I did it, but I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. But because I think some people really get comfort in being told this is the, these are the five steps, but I'm not, that's not my out of the gate response because it can backfire and people can feel it's so rigid. Yes, yes. And I think that, you know, science doesn't often really give us like, you know, you go in after five minutes of crying and then, you know, put their pacifier in once, you know, it's just like not that clear. And, you know, it's more these like overarching principles, you know, like in your book, it's, it's not like, it's not as prescriptive. It's not like this is exactly what you do. And in some ways that would be easier as parents if you're like, okay, tell me exactly what to do, but it's so complicated. You know, there's all these other factors. There's like your values and there's what works best for your life and all these different, you know, if you have other kids, if you have, 
you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, you're the other kids are woken up by the babies crying too. And like, you know, there's just so many factors that go into it. And it would be so easy if it was like, this is exactly what you do. But But I think that's probably why scripts and social media can be so appealing for some people. And and then if it is, great. If you're like, I don't care if it's aligned with my values and I don't care if it's scientific. I just want exactly minute to minute what to do. That's okay. But just be aware of it. Yes, exactly. Um, So one of your principles is reflection, which is, you know, thinking about how you were a parent, what you would do differently. And, you know, I would love to hear from you. You know, you're ahead of me in the parenting game. You have older kids. You're also like a top parenting expert in the world. I would love to hear, you know, what what would you do differently if you were back in the stage of having little kids? And and what advice do you have for those of us who are kind of like still in the trenches with little kids and, and you know, maybe give us some hope for the future <laughs> that we're going to get through it? <laughs> well, I'll tell you that my my kids, when they want to drive me crazy, will say like, you're a professional parent. And I'm like, Ugh! <laughs> <laughs> or they'll videotape me when I'm losing it. And they're like, that feels like a great ad for you. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, good. I, they keep me humble. <laughs> yeah, they keep me very humble because I like, you know, we can know as much science as we can know, and it's very easy for me to have thoughts and feelings about something that is not my experience. But you know, if we're late, I'm just as pissed as the next yeah. guy. Same, same. <laughs> um, right? But um, I would say that thinking back, I really valued, I have two daughters and I really valued their lack of rebelliousness. Like I really valued what good compliance they had. And I think that I probably made them feel valued for it in a way that I wish I hadn't because I just think it's a weight on girls in particular that I didn't mean to place on them. And if I really dig in and I'm honest and it breaks my heart to think it, but I do remember like those moments when I just didn't want them to embarrass me or something. And like that breaks my heart that I ever like would have spent two seconds giving a shoot, giving a hoot, (laughs) what other people thought in a moment over what my kids were going through or I was going through with them, which is not to say that we shouldn't care about other people because there were moments when it's like, you know what, you're disrupting someone else's date night. So like, I am going to care because we're part of a world. We're not just like our own individuals, but I mean more like that's, you know, snarky, braggy other parent who makes you feel bad. And like, getting in any way, changing my behavior because of it and like having that reflect on my kids. Yes. I've definitely been there. I was just in the grocery store with my three-year-old the other day and he was, he was majorly um, showing some challenging behavior, I'll just say. And, (laughs) you know, I had a moment where I was just acting the way I thought you know, everybody, all the 
you know, older people who I felt like were judging me in the grocery store, which they probably weren't even paying attention to. They probably weren't even thinking about you, you know? but it feels like you were like, what's she going to do? I'm like, what do they think is the right thing for me to do in this situation rather than, you know, okay, what do I actually think or what would I do if there was nobody around? Um, yes. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so guilty of that as well. It's it's so hard in the moment. It is so hard in the moment, but I will for hope reasons say I am so and also I wish I cooked. I'm I know that sounds ridiculous, but I, I'm like the opposite of perfectionistic when it comes to like like I didn't worry about making sure that everything was made beautifully and stuff, but I did like care very much about materials in the household, but food wise, I was like as long as it's organic, most of the time, I just wasn't, I just can't, I'm not a good cook, but I, as they're, they're older now, they don't crave anything. Like I wish I had learned one dessert or one fun thing that they like would always come back for. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's like, I'm also not a cook. So I'm going to like, yeah, that should work on that. Yeah, like, maybe, like, maybe cookies. Um, <laughs> but I will say like, it does get like having for example, I have one of my kids driving the other one now. I'm like, this amazing. is amazing. <laughs> amazing. And, and like knowing that, I don't know, like knowing that now you can just like hang and have to kind of forget that you aren't friends and that you are in fact the parent is obviously very important, but it's harder to do when you've got like, when you're especially, I think, with teenage girls, because my brain is like, am I just, <laughs> I could totally be back here already. I remember this age. Like yeah. I don't remember being five, but I remember being 17. Yes. That must be so fun and so challenging at the same time. <laughs> it's like half my brain is like, I have to definitely say no to this. And also it's totally unacceptable. And half my brain is like, let's go together. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine at the point I'm at, but that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so this has been so amazing to get all of your insights on so many different topics of parenting. Can you tell our listeners where to find more information about you, your new book, your podcast, or any other resources that you think would be helpful? So I am at I'm on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And you can go to Raising Good Humans podcast on Apple or wherever. My book is called The Five Principles of Parenting, and I would love for you to get it and tell me what you think. And I have a Substack newsletter. Oh my God, do I even know what it's called? I think it's called dralisa.substack.com. That's what it is. It's just a free newsletter. And um, I usually have links to the episodes and a little and you know some article that is a is an offshoot of um one of the conversations that i've had on the podcast i think that's it <laughs> amazing well thank you so much for being here and for all of your incredible insights um so grateful to have this chance to talk to you um thank you so much and we all are looking forward to checking out your new book <laughs> thank you thank you thank you
Parenting Translator is a nonprofit organization, so all of these podcasts and the information they provide are given to you for free. If you would like to support our work, please subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it. Thank you so much.